According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4, dealing with the early verses here in verses 1 through 9. As Proverbs 4 begins with a collective address to plural sons. The collective address to plural sons. Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father and give attention that you may gain understanding. There is a difference between hearing and paying attention. (laughs) All right. A lot of times you can hear, but because you're not paying attention, you didn't exactly listen to what it was you were hearing. All right. And, uh, or sometimes you don't hear what you were listening to and kind of use the terms back and forth. But, um, This is what we're dealing with, all right? Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask God the Father to set aside distractions and to bless our time in His Word today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word. We come before Your throne of grace this morning and ask for Your hand of blessing upon our time together that you would open the eyes of our understanding, that you would speak to us, Father. We want more than just simply to acquire information, Father. We want to acquire the understanding. And so uh, in this very passage, in fact, we have the, uh, the imperatives that we want to obey today. So uh, make it happen. Open our eyes. Teach us, Father, to glorify your Son. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And we're very quickly getting to verse 5 here. Acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. And this is the uh, imperative that every parent ought to be instilling to every child. Every believer needs to maintain this as a priority for the duration of their life. It's not just simply uh, uh, you reach a certain level where you're content with uh, enough. Say, well, I know enough. All right, well, you can never know enough because there's an infinite amount to know, but it's more than what we know. It's more than the quantity of what we know. It's the quality of how we live. It's how the Word of God shapes us and transforms us and molds us to accomplish His good pleasure. And so it's not just acquiring wisdom, it's also acquiring understanding. Those two go hand in hand. I I want the wisdom of the Word of God, I want the doctrine that I need, but I need to have the understanding for how to live it, how to put it to practice, how to, how to uh, demonstrate that Word of God in, in my life. And then I can't forget it. Verse 5, do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. And there's two different snares there. Forgetting is, is one thing. That's just where through neglect and you kind of get out of the habit and is the habit of some neglecting the Word of God. Uh, but beyond forgetting is the actual active turning away. Because you haven't forgotten it. You know what the Word says. You just don't like it much anymore. You would much rather serve yourself. And you're going to do what you're going to do in spite of what the Word of God says. And that's not, that's not forgetting. That is a willful apostasy. A willful turning away. You know better. But you're going to do what you're going to do anyway in spite of the fact that you know that it's wrong. So uh, we'll be dealing with verse 5. In fact, as we have time today, I want to take the time to go through verse 5 and take the time to uh, take a look at a word study out of verse 5. And so we'll demonstrate some things with the software. But first we've got to deal with the background. And the background comes in verse 3. So 
Let's take a look at it. Uh, Again, verse 1 says, Hear, O sons, the instructions of a father. Give attention that you may gain understanding, for I give you sound teaching. Okay, or whole or healthy sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. When I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother. That's the context. Then he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. Okay. Now, how early did uh, David ground Solomon in the truth? This verse gives us a clue. How early? When he was tender and the only son in the sight of my mother. Because he'll, he'll have some brothers and, and sisters, he'll have some siblings before long. He gets those siblings. Bathsheba will deliver a total of four sons, I believe, to, uh, to David. And we're going to see that here in this... Uh, in this context. All right, so point one again, Proverbs 4 begins with a collective address to plural sons. Oh, thank you. I guess I should turn that on. You will see it better that way. Subpoint A, the normal expression is uh, not uh, sons plural, but sons singular. Throughout the early portion of Proverbs, especially in chapters 1 through 9, the early portion of Proverbs that I have titled Parental Wisdom, in uh, this early portion, all right, wake up now, wake up now, searching for source. So this is something else we typically do. We come in at 9.45, we do a sound check, we get the projector turned on, make sure the equipment's working. All right. Excellent. All right, so it's plural in this chapter instead of the singular that we've been accustomed to. The normal expression has been singular, my son, my son, all right? And we realize that it's primarily being addressed from David to Solomon, although Solomon's putting it in writing and addressing it to his son, we would imagine Rehoboam or whoever. Uh, how many sons did Solomon have? Well, how many wives did he have? Okay, With that many women and that much activity, there's, there's a lot of kids, that's right. There are a lot. And we know um, that it causes problems, right? David had multiple wives. David had multiple sons, okay? And it got him in trouble. His family life was a wreck. And he had brothers raping sisters. I mean, he had all kinds of horrible, horrible things that were happening within his family, part of the divine discipline for the Bathsheba adultery. But what we learn is, is in the aftermath of the Bathsheba adultery and the recovery from reversionism, is that David dedicated himself to training Solomon. And that training Solomon to be the next king, to be the heir, to be the, uh, the man of wisdom that he became was a, a focus of David's life in, at the end of David's life. And this is what we want to understand, I think, as it relates to not only chapter 4, but really the, the book of Proverbs as a whole. So we're accustomed to the singular, my son. In fact, 15 times we have it in the singular in the first nine chapters of Proverbs. There are four times, however where that expression is expanded to the plural sons. And I think I said last week as well, the plural sons could also encompass daughters when it comes to that, that in mixed gender company, if you have boys and girls in, in, a, in a group, even if it's 
one boy and 99 girls, doesn't matter. You use the masculine plural pronoun. You use sons uh, as, the, as the expression. Same thing in Spanish, same thing in German, and so many languages. If it's mixed company and you have to put it in a gender, then you put it in the masculine gender for the uh, mixed company. So we could even say, hear, O children, the instruction of a father, and give attention that you may gain understanding. The four times where it's expanded to plural is here, Proverbs 4.1. It'll happen again in 5.7, 7.24, and 8.32. We looked at those last week and don't need to reread them this morning. Point B, sound teaching is given persuasively and personally. It must also be taken or received persuasively and personally. Okay, Sound teaching is given persuasively and personally, and it must be taken or received persuasively and personally. And we have a, the expression here from the Hebrew lakach that we want to understand. L-E-Q-A-C-H, lakach. And it's, sometimes it's rendered as teaching, sometimes it's rendered as persuasion. And really, we could even blend the ideas as a persuasive teaching <laughs> or an instructive persuasion. Okay, uh, Just kind of view the concept. It's hard to simply render it in a single English expression because depending on context, you may want to handle it in different ways. But there are nine Old Testament uses. And uh, in, in each of these, I think it's interesting, um, and I don't want to re- repeat everything we did last week, but in, in some of these, like in 7.21 and 9.9, uh, the issue is more of enticing or persuading on a, on a negative basis, like the, the, the strange woman and, uh, and that. In Proverbs 7.21, it says, with her many persuasions, that's lakach, all right? She entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. And so whatever it is, you know, and it, more than one, because it says many, many persuasions. And so maybe it's words, maybe it's looks, maybe it's body features, whatever it might be. She has a whole toolbox full of things that she can use to, to seduce this young man, this, this knucklehead, I call him, all right? And with all of them together, with many of them, she lakach, she persuades, she entices him. And with her flattering lips, she seduces him. So there's a persuasion in this vocabulary. Likewise, in chapter 9, um, and this is on a positive basis, give instruction to wise men and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase his learning. And so that's Proverbs 9, 9, where we have lakach as well. So sometimes it's more persuasion, sometimes it's more teaching, but it's lakach in both cases. Twice in uh, chapter 16, verse 21 and 23. The wise in heart will be called understanding, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness, teaches persuasiveness. Okay? And this is why we, we try to stress the, the nature of the Word of God and what it is that we're teaching, what it is that we're preaching. How is it, as we're teaching, do we increase our persuasiveness? Um, you know, in, in its appropriate place. What is the, the method? What is the style? And, and don't confuse things in terms of, you know, some people can, can major in the, in the eloquence 
And 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 in in some churches, you become pastor because you're the you're the best speaker out there, man. You can you can gab for hours, and you can you can get them rolling, right? You can you can you have the the kind of verbal eloquence that gets the juices going, and the people are sitting there on the edge of their pews, and they're amen, amen, brother, amen, brother. And then, but you you go home and you think, well, what was he really saying? <laughs> what what was the content? What was the, the actual meat or the doctrine of what he was saying? There wasn't a whole lot of content there, but he said it well. Okay, he said it very well. And then there's other people that have the greatest content on earth, and they are the driest, most boring, dull, and you're thinking, ah, all right, you know. So how do we approach this? How do we approach this biblically? Okay, biblically. And are we, in fact, are we, in fact, persuading as we preach? Are we supposed to be persuading as we preach? I believe we are. I believe the purpose of preaching is to persuade. The purpose of preaching is to admonish, as it says, to admonish each one with tears. That's the, that's the whole point. It's not just simply to provide information. We're not just reading an index, uh, an anthology of data, right, uh, and, and saying, here you go. We want you to be impressed by the data. We want you to be changed by the data. We want the Word of God to shape who you are because that's what the Word of God is designed to do. And so as it's given, it's persuasive, and it's personal. It's personal. Returning back to Proverbs 4 here, he says, uh, let your heart hold fast my words. My words. Okay? Keep my commandments and live. This is David's Torah. The word Torah there for commandment or law. Or, okay? It, but it's not just the, the, the Torah of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. David had personalized it. He had embraced it. It has become his law. It has become his words. And this is the thing, too. We want to take in doctrine to where it's yours. Are you able to not only apply it and use it? Does it shape how you think? Are you able to explain it to somebody else? Have you so personalized it that now it's your understanding of Scripture to now where you can personally and persuasively exhort a brother or a sister in, in some capacity of doctrine? That's the point. That's the objective of Lakach. All right? So the Torah of God must become my Torah. Paul does the same thing in the New Testament. How many times does Paul talk about my gospel? <laughs> right? My gospel. We should be willing to talk about my gospel, which is, of course, Jesus' gospel. It's the gospel of, of eternal life. It's the eternal gospel. It's not uh, another gospel. It's, it's the gospel, but it becomes yours when you personalize it, when you persuasively give it to somebody else. All right? Point C, the birth of Solomon was a tender occasion for David and Bathsheba. Not only was Solomon himself called tender, the term tender in verse 3, when I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the side of my mother. And uh, yes, he was a tender boy. You know, every boy is at that age. But tender in terms of the event, in terms of the experience, what it was that David and uh, Bathsheba were going through at that time, it was a tender occasion. And that's what where we ran out of time and we were dealing with uh, a week ago. Uh, going back to 2 Samuel 12 and especially 1 Chronicles 22. Let me take these out of order, um, or I'll probably just skip the 1 Kings passage. Let's look at 2 Samuel 12, remind ourselves of what we looked at, and, uh, and build it from there. 2 Samuel chapter 12. 
And I suppose one passage we did not see um, last week. Let me add it to this week. Before we read 12, let's read 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, all right? Join me in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Because we want to see what it says and what's not said in this chapter, because it does get said by the time we reach 1 Chronicles 22. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, keep him in mind, he's featured in all of this, King said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. And he says, I don't like this. This is a problem. I've got this great palace, and look where the ark is sitting. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. This is a marvelous principle for divine guidance. And it's a valid principle for divine guidance. Uh, David's not under a commandment to build a temple. It's not a have to. He has no instruction from God on this. It's simply a want to. The idea popped into his head. And and where do ideas like that come from? And how do we think of stuff like this? And, you know, you get an idea and think, wow, it'd be kind of nice if I could do this. I'd like to do this. And it becomes a want to from the standpoint of our own imagination, our own human creativity, our own desire, and our own volition that wants to glorify Jesus Christ. And Nathan encourages him in this and says, look, God is with you. The Lord is with you. You are pleasing in God's sight. Your Christian walk is going well. You are under teaching. You are stable. <laughs> you know, uh, It seems like if this is something that, that, uh, that you're thinking about, well, who is it that shapes your thinking? God shapes your thinking. The Lord shapes your thinking. You know, this, is, uh, this seems like a great idea. Okay? And here's the thing. We can't assume that if our thinking is shaped by God, then these ideas are going to be good ideas. And if we're wrong, God will show us. Okay? We may have the greatest idea in the world, and we're not, maybe we're not even wrong, but it may be that we're just simply not aware of God's better idea. Okay? And uh, God's better idea, God's plan, calls for Solomon to build the temple, not David to build the temple. So I'm glad you had the idea, David, but what you don't know is you're going to have a son, and that's the one I designed from the foundation of the world to build this temple. So you're not wrong to have the idea. So in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? Okay, right idea, wrong builder. For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel, but I've been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. And God says, I'm fine with that. I'm content with that. There is a time that that will change, but it's not this time. When did I ever command or ask for a a house and so forth? Now, verse 8, Therefore, say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I didn't do that on day one, did I? You know, you were anointed as a boy, but it was years before you became king. Understand how God operates in his timetable. I brought you, I've been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name like the names of great men who are on the earth. That hadn't happened yet, you know. You realize that? The name of David is going to be acknowledged as a premier character in world history. And as of 2015, what year is this? 2015 AD, that has not yet happened. 
There has never been a time in human history that humanity has looked back to the reign of David and thought, wow, that was a huge time for, for mankind. You know, we talk about Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great and William the Conqueror and all these other uh, tremendous people from human history. And uh, David, that's, that's myth. That's mythology. We, we're not sure there even was a real David. Okay, that's what the liberals tell you. But a day will come and David will get his due. All right. Anyway, to save time, we get down through this. Notice um, there is a son coming and I will raise up your descendant. He will build a house for my name in verse 13. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, this is why we know it's not Christ in this passage, it's Solomon in this passage. Okay, the, the, the further view looking to the greater son and in a further fulfillment is secondary to the primary for this text. Okay, When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of man and the strokes of the son of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. See, Solomon messed up more than Saul ever did. But Solomon didn't lose his throne like Saul, like Saul did because of the grace that was extended to David. All right. What I like is David's response in verse 18. David the king went and he worshipped. He said, who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? He doesn't pout as, as many of us would do, as I would do or whoever, right? Say, well, I wanted to do this and God won't let me. Well, bully for him then. All right, I'm done. God won't let me do this. I'll show him. If I can't do this, then I'm not doing nothing. Forget it. I'm done. I quit. I'm, 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 forget it. I wanted to do all this. Okay, we throw a little hissy fit, a little temper tantrum. We get our feelings hurt because we were going to do all these great things. We were going to impress God with all the stuff we could do. Not David. I love his humility here and his response. Okay? Now, what's uh, to me, the, the, the thing I like most about chapter 7 is that it comes before chapter 11. <laughs> All right? That these are unconditional covenant promises that God gives to David before the Bathsheba adultery. All right? And even with the Bathsheba adultery and the Uriah murder and all the ugliness of chapter 11, this is an unconditional, absolute, eternal covenant promise, and God does not lie. He will fulfill this covenant. He will fulfill this promise. He will not lie to David. And so the adultery with Bathsheba in chapter 11, the repentance in chapter 12, once he's exposed, I mean, realize he had done everything he could to cover up this sin. He tried to get Uriah to go in there and cover up for the pregnancy. Yeah, then when that didn't work, he had to put Uriah to death. All right. Now, nine months later, David is still playing the, the cover-up game. The whole term of her pregnancy, and he's in denial. He is he's living a lie. He has not confessed. He has not repented. He's been walking in darkness the whole time. Then the kid's born and the kid dies. Okay. So here's Nathan again. Same Nathan, same prophet. What I love is that after Solomon, the next son that gets born is gets the name of Nathan. <laughs> Isn't that great? All right. So uh, in chapter 12, he's exposed, and, uh, and notice, when all of this gets exposed and the judgment is handed down, 
in verse 13 of 2 Samuel 12 and verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. You realize how close he was to the son of David. Two occasions in David's life where he was that close to the Lord just taking him out. All right? And this is one. I have sinned against the Lord. You shall not die. And and stop to consider how serious is it when we confess our sins? (laughs) You know, he's waiting for us. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if he'd have said anything other than what he said right there, like, oh, well, it's not my fault, or oh, well, you know, she was bathing naked. I, I couldn't help it. I was up on the roof. And any kind of excuse, any kind of, uh, human justification that were too common to take part in. I believe he would have been struck down dead on the spot. But instead he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And that's the confession. All right. However, because by this deed you've given occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. And so Nathan went to his house. And here's the consequences. This son, who should have been Uriah's son, this son is going to die. The undeserved suffering of, of his own physical death. All right? And uh, in the process of this, David goes an entire week and he fasts and he weeps and he prays because he says, who knows? Who knows? And I like that. The who knows prayers in verse 22. Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the Lord may live. God said, surely the child will die. And David says, who knows? All right? I don't believe God's a liar, but I do believe God's a God of grace. And it may be, it may be that if if I repent and confess and humble myself and who knows, God may be gracious and he may, he may uh, relent and and allow the child to live. Well, it doesn't happen. So now that the child has died, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. That's verse 12, uh, verse 23 of chapter 12, 2 Samuel 12, 23. You don't have that underlined in your Bible yet, underline it, because that's that's the best evidence we have in the whole Bible for the age of accountability and the doctrinal understanding that recognizes that when a child dies, an infant that's not old enough to know evil or good, to, re- to accept the gospel or reject the gospel, when a child is that young, in the grace of God, the uh, iniquity of Adam is not imputed. He is not condemned. Okay? He's born in Adam, no question. But it's not assigned to him as the guilt punishment at, at his physical death. Because in the grace of God, he was not old enough to be accountable. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. All right. Now, this leads us then to the key verses that are on the screen, verses 24 and 25. David comforted his wife Bathsheba. He comforted his wife Bathsheba. She had just lost a son as well. She just lost a baby. And uh, she required ministry, and her husband is the one assigned to minister to her. And he comforted his wife. And what was the content of that comfort? What was the content? Did he comfort her with, uh, with, with uh, Mexican food? Okay. Ice cream? These are the kind of things that work in my marriage. All right. Uh, did he comfort her, with, uh, <laughs> did he comfort her with, with sex? That's what it says right there. David comforted his wife and went into her and lay with her. Okay, now wait a minute. Separate those two expressions out from one another. There's an and in between there. 
Don't confuse it that says, well, he comforted his wife by going in with her and laying with her, and she gave birth to another son. Okay? Don't combine those phrases. Separate those phrases, because that's what the text does. All right? doesn't comfort her with sex. Okay? You can comfort a man with sex, but women, different story. All right? And, uh, and this is what we're told. Okay? This is what we're told. Okay? Because until her soul is stable... Until her heart is right before the Lord, forget the, the sex, come on. You've got to minister to her. And what we're learning in, particularly in, in Proverbs 4, when I was a tender son, the only son on the side of my mother, he taught me. David was the spiritual leader of his home. He was teaching doctrine to his young son. And do you think that comforts the wife? When the father's teaching doctrine to the son, all right. So we see it here now. Uh, in addition to the comforting activity, yes, there was more marital activity, and the marital activity had offspring. And this is the birth of Solomon and more. There are additional children besides Solomon. When you track the the genealogies in Matthew and in Luke, what do you see? You see that the royal line, the legal line, the line of, of, uh, of father to son is through Solomon to Joseph to Jesus of Nazareth. All right? That's the legal line. That's the, the heir to the, to the Davidic covenant. But the human line does not go through Solomon. The human line goes through Nathan, okay? The little brother to Solomon that they named after this very faithful prophet right here that uh, was so uh, significant in, uh, in their life, okay? All right, and so uh, here's Solomon. The Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet, and he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake, that is, beloved of the Lord, Jedidiah. Okay, great name. Now, with this as our context, I think 1 Chronicles 22 will be in its, in its best uh, context and setting then. 1 Chronicles 22, verses 8 through 10. And here's the promise. The promise is that Solomon will be the one to build the house. The promise is that Solomon needs to be um, humble before the Lord and walk in wisdom because he's the one that has to build this house. So David said to Solomon in verse 7, let's see, well, he didn't even read the first six verses here, but here's David making all the preparations. He was not allowed to build the house, but you read these verses and see what he does. He purchases the materials. He stockpiles the construction materials. He funds the whole thing. David prepared large quantities of iron to make the nails for the doors, the gate, and the clamps, and more bronze than could be weighed. Timber and cedar and all this stuff. He has friendship with the Tyrians and the Sidonians and brings all these materials in. David made ample preparations before his death. You see that there in verse 5? David made ample preparations before his death. I hope we are preparing our children for things that we're not going to be able to do until you know they're going to do after we're gone. Are we equipping them to do that? Are we preparing them to do that? So he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said, my son, I intended to build a house in the name of the Lord, but the word of the Lord came to me saying, no, it's not for you. 
You've waged, you've shed much blood, waged great wars. Your role is not to build this house. But a son will be born to you who shall be a man of rest. A son will be born to you. Now, when did he tell him that? The Lord told him that before the son was born to him. <laughs> the Lord told him that in the context of 2 Samuel chapter 7 when he received this Davidic covenant. Okay? This is additional information that's not found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But we need to know about it. I believe this is the content of how he comforted his wife. He comforted Bathsheba with this doctrine, with this promise. A son will be born to you who will be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side, and his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. So you can imagine David is comforting Bathsheba, saying, you know, I'm married to a lot of women and I have a lot of sons, but I don't yet have a Solomon. And God promised me I was going to have a Solomon. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father. I will be esta- and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. All right, so here is the uh, here is the content. Here is the doctrine that we see. So when we do look at First Kings chapter one, and we see some of the uh, the attempted coup, we see the attempt that Adonijah makes to steal the throne to uh, to uh, claim it for himself while David's not dead yet. And uh, he manipulates, uh, Adonijah manipulates the politics, he manipulates the military, he manipulates the priesthood. He gets uh, Abiathar the priest and uh, uh, some of these guys on his side. Beniah, no I'm sorry, Beniah was on the good side. In 1 Kings chapter 1, we have this attempted coup, this attempt on Adonijah's part to steal the throne away from Solomon. And, uh, and so Bathsheba has the role here. And Bathsheba comes in and tells David, you promised me. You promised me. And um, in verse 17, she tells David, my Lord, you swore to your maidservant by the Lord your God, saying, surely your son Solomon shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne. How could David possibly promise her that? Well, thanks to Second, uh, First Chronicles, we know. Because God had made the prophecy. God had said that his son Solomon would reign on the throne. All right. So we see it there. Point D. David's recovery from the sin and the death entailed full repentance and teaching others the hard lessons learned. David's recovery from the sin and the death. We already saw the verse in 2 Samuel 12, in verse 14. He was that close to dying. That close to the sin unto death. I think too many Christians uh, don't realize how close they are because they've been given so much. To whom much is given shall much be required. And they think, oh well, you know, I've been, I've been good for so long. He'll cut me some slack. Oh well, I've done so much for him all these years. He'll, he doesn't mind. And we find ways to justify, ways to rationalize, ways to excuse what we're doing. All right. No, repentance entailed full repentance, complete repentance, and teaching others the hard lessons learned. And it's described here in Proverbs 4, verses 4 through 9, about his teaching role. The teaching role that he had with his own children, right? 
the teaching role that he had as not only information, but something that has to be received and personalized and embraced in what the Word of God does. As it says in Proverbs 4, 4, keep my commandments and live. <laughs> okay? Because as you recover from reversionism, um, humbling yourself under doctrine and getting on that crash program and saturating your soul with truth, that may be the only thing that gets you out of it. Okay? That absolutely gets you out of it. And I've seen it so many times. I've seen believers and they, and they, uh, they kind of recover a little bit. They kind of recover somewhat. And they think they're out of the woods, and I tell them, you're not that far out of the woods, okay? You're still on the edges. You can still see those trees. Do you know how quickly you can just jump right back into it again? All right, you're having a good day. Great, you're having a good week. Great. Have a good month. Have a good year. Get with the program. Get Saturate your soul with truth. Be so embraced with this that, you know, when it's been a year, when it's been two years, when it's been five years, and then I'll start to think, okay, maybe, maybe you're not going to plunge back into it in the next month, okay? Acquire wisdom. Acquire understanding. Do not forget, and I think forgetting is, is not only the doctrine that you're learning, but the damage you've done the last time you forgot the doctrine you're learning. Do not forget, nor turn away. Then it says, uh, do not forsake her, and she will guard you. Love her, and she will watch over you. Now, this is, wisdom is feminine, and, and so it's spoken of as a she, as a, as a girl. I, I think in this chapter, it's parental. You can think of it as the, the love of a mother. Uh, in, in chapter 5, in these later chapters, it's going to be not parental, it's going to be marital. The, uh, the feminine that, uh, that we embrace and that we love and that we um, fondle. And, and, and we'll talk about that when we talk about the intimacy with doctrine, okay, on a caressing type basis. But here, uh, guarding and watching over you, guarding and watching over you, this is, this is a mother for her boy, all right? This is a mother for her boy. And I tell you, <laughs> I've learned... For the last two years now, how much uh, my mother's prayers kept me in the ministry, you know? And now that it's gone, <laughs> no wonder conflict rages the way that it does. Man, I had no clue how much uh, you know, weight she was lifting in her prayer life. Well, here we see it. All right. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom, and with your acquiring, get understanding. Prize her, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a garland of grace. She will present you with a crown of beauty. And this is uh, using the, the metaphor, using the language of a mother to her son, but showing what, what the Word of God does to a child, to a young child that you're grounding in doctrine before they're even old enough to know Anything else, all right? Train them up early. Train them up early. It's a teaching opportunity. Let's look at Psalm 51. Let's look at David's psalm of repentance here. Psalm 51. Don't just take my word for it. The Bible itself has a commentary on David's recovery from his reversionism. And the Holy Spirit inspired it in the text of Psalm 51. 
This is a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Remember, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. Don't think for a minute. When we confess our sins, if we beg hard enough, if we work for it, if we earn it, if we deserve it, no. Nothing to do with what we've earned or deserved, which is the lake of fire. It has everything to do with his faithfulness, his justice, his compassion, his loving kindness. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. It was not a pleasant nine months. It got worse and worse and worse and worse. He even talks about broken bones, the damage that he was doing to his own body. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Understand that. There were offenses against Uriah, of course. Adultery was an offense against Uriah. Murder was an offense against Uriah. But Uriah is not the absolute standard of righteousness. God is the absolute standard of righteousness. This is why even if your brother sins against you, he's not sinning against you, he's sinning against God. Jesus Christ paid for it on the cross. As Christ forgave you, you forgive them. There is nothing you cannot forgive because there's nothing that Christ did not pay for. Against you and you only have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are justified when you speak, blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. Every human being is born in Adam. Every human being is born spiritually dead in need of eternal life. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. In the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. See, in the recovery from sin, you have the opportunity to learn. And that's what it says here. You desire truth in the innermost being. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. It's been a long time. In prolonged darkness, when's the last time? How long has it been, right? Like the gospel song. How long has it been since you've knelt in prayer and talked with the Lord? And that's right, how long has it been? Okay, make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquities. Now notice, what am I headed for? I'm headed for 10 through 17. Okay, there we are, verse 10. (laughs) Create in me a clean heart, O God. See, there's more than just, there's more than just being washed. There's more than just recovering from the sin. I've got to grow from that, right? The colonel always taught rebound and follow through. It's always confess and forsake. It's always be restored to fellowship and move on. Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You know, when you're still kind of new in your repentance and you're still kind of new out of, out of your darkness again, what, what, do you have a steadfast spirit? No, that's got to be renewed. You've got to reform those patterns. You've got to reestablish those uh, disciplines. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And we don't need to pray that, of course, because we're church-age believers. We have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But David certainly could have lost the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament believers did not have the permanent indwelling like we have. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Here's the volition. You might have some damaged volition for a while because you've done an awful lot of damage in your time of darkness. 
That's why you ask Him to use His volition to impact your volition. Say, Father, uh, you know, like whatever the case may be, whatever, I've been a a drunk for the last 10 years, okay? I'm not going to have much willpower in terms of alcohol for some time, probably ever for the rest of my life maybe, okay? So you, Father, sustain me with a willing spirit. Work in me to will and to do of your good pleasure. Father, my volition is going to be weak, so you work in me, sustain me with a willing spirit. Or whatever. It doesn't have to be alcohol, drugs, sex, women, whatever. Whatever your pattern of darkness has been, uh, for a while, you're going to have some damaged volition. Notice though, then I will teach transgressors your ways. This is, this is a verse that I think most believers don't want in their Bibles. Ooh, teaching. I don't want to be a teacher. Well, it's going to speed your recovery up and it may be the only thing that allows you to recover. It may be a part of the process that causes you to be so honest about your darkness. Then it will teach transgressors your ways. Sinners will be converted to you. Okay, and this is where it's a humble opportunity. David had to teach his boys about the the uh, the sex issues, the adultery problems, the you know why polygamy never satisfies, and and sadly Solomon learned it early and forgot it late. Because if you don't teach them now, they're going to be worse than you were in your day. Their darkness will be worse than your darkness. That's how the sins of the father multiply. So. I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. And this is the opportunity. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Is there a difference between... What what is this blood guiltiness? Okay? That there is discipline for our sin and then there is the compound discipline. There are the additional assignments and David had to face them his whole life. You know, I mean... And sometimes we don't like that either. (laughs) <laughs> we, we want to think, well, I'm back in fellowship. Shouldn't all my problems go away? Okay? I only fornicated once. Why do I, I got to raise this kid for 18 years? All right? There are lifelong consequences for so much of what we do. And don't confuse forgiveness. We can be forgiven of our sins, but we still face consequences, in some cases, lifelong consequences. All right, then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Your righteousness in forgiving a sinner saved by grace. How about that? Open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. The praise of one who has been forgiven. One who has been rescued from darkness. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. Don't, don't get all religious. It's not ritual that's going to rescue you. It's the reality of your transformed heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And this is what it comes right down to. So you've got an opportunity in your recovery. You've got an opportunity for fruit bearing down the road. In particular, when you see a brother knucklehead doing stuff that you used to do, all right, you can come alongside and say, hey, I've been there. I've done that. Okay? It's your teaching opportunity. If you're humble to do it. If you're not 
And I think too many Christians, um, they won't. Because they're, they're, they're still in denial. They're still hiding it. They're still murdering Uriah and covering their tracks and doing all this other stuff. And uh, they, they, they don't want anyone to know what it was that they used to do. Okay? And I get that. I understand that. <laughs> okay? But you've got to ask yourself, what's more important, your pride or their divine discipline? Do you really want them to go through the suffering you went through just because you're too embarrassed to say something? Ask yourself, what's more important, the glory of Jesus Christ or your embarrassment? Ask yourself, have you really repented? <laughs> I say, okay, yeah, it's, it's not fun to talk about, but it, you know, maybe I shouldn't have done it in the first place. Maybe this is the additional assignment I've been given to be able to teach this, to be able to, to exhort, to be able to, to rescue somebody. You know, if we can turn a sinner from the, the evil of his ways, what have we done? Oh, wait, that's spoken James. I'll, I'll let you teach that. All right? What have we done? at this point. Teaching others the hard lessons learned. And that's uh, the opportunity there. All right. Finally, point E, the number one lesson David ever taught Solomon was Kene Chachma, acquire wisdom. Kene Chachma, acquire wisdom. And we'll have some fun with Kene We'll have some fun with it today. We'll have some fun with it down the road because it's going to come back again. We really have to deal, deal with it in chapter 8, but we'll give you a preview here in chapter 4 for the verb kana. The verb acquire. Okay, I like the translation acquire. Acquire is a very um, vanilla term. In other words, it's... it's uh, um, non-specific. It's very generic. Acquire. Acquire doesn't tell you how you acquired it. You can acquire something in, in a variety of ways. You could, you could buy something and you've acquired it. You could steal something and you've acquired it. You could, uh, you could manufacture something and you've acquired it. You could give birth to something. At least you women can and you've acquired it, okay? And I guess men too. You can acquire what your wife gives birth to. There's different ways to acquire something. You could just randomly find it laying in the street. Wow, okay? Find 20 bucks laying in the gutter and go, wow, okay? And you have acquired it. And and acquire, I I love the translation because in English anyway, it does exactly what kana does in the Hebrew. Kana is, it, all it means is to get. Okay? Do you get that? Okay? You get what I'm saying? We can even get something mentally. We can get something as a concept that we never physically have. Okay? We can get uh, a headache. We can get a sore throat. We can get, we can acquire any number of things. And how do, they, how do we get them? All right? The word itself gives no indication for how, where, when, why, how, it's gotten. It just stresses the gottenness of something. There may be additional context surrounding other terms, other expressions, other uh, uh, 
indicators in the passage that will fill in the details and show you how something is gotten. But Cana only speaks of gotten. I got it. I acquired it. Okay? Maybe even better than acquire is get. Get. And we have a get here. Um, Acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. Verse 7, the beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. And with your acquiring get, there's the get in verse 7, understanding. But it's the same kana as it was the first four times. And it's almost like the translators were tired of using acquire, 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 acquire. So they finally they just gave up and threw a get right there at the end. <laughs> all right? With all your getting, with all your acquisitions, get understanding. So we have this. In fact, I can show you. I meant to put this up earlier. Open up here to Proverbs chapter 8. No, Proverbs chapter 4. Too small. All right. Verse 5, verse 7. So you can see the acquire, 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 acquiring, and get. Five times in those two verses that we have this... uh, Kana or its cognate form. The acquiring actually is a noun form. There it is in the Hebrew. Isn't this great? I can play with these all day long. Really, being a pastor is like kindergarten. You get to color things. Kind of fun. I like I like to color. But there's your kane, 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 kin uh, there's your noun form is the kinyan. Uh, Kenyan there, and then the final Kenye in verse uh, 7. But it's the, the impact here on the acquire. Acquire, 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 acquire. And what do you need to acquire wisdom? Does it cost money? <laughs> what do you need to acquire wisdom? Well, you need humility. You have to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. You've got to, um, you've got to prioritize doctrine in your life. That requires humility. Doesn't cost anything. We don't charge admission here. You just got to show up. Okay. It might be a little gas in your tank or whatever. You got to, but it requires a willingness to learn, a humility to learn what he's teaching you, a grace and humility to accept the truth of what he's teaching you, even in the passages you don't like. And then the humility to learn the lessons of your divine discipline. When you fail to learn it academically and God assigns the discipline to you, in the consequences of your sin, then you're going to acquire wisdom that way. Okay? I recommend we learn as much as we can the easy way. <laughs> All right? Learn it in Bible class. Learn it in testing through victory, not through defeat. But he'll teach you the other way too. Why? Because he wants you to know this. It's his will for you to learn this doctrine. So if you don't learn it the right way, he'll teach you through the discipline. So acquire, 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 acquire. You don't have to buy it. It's free, freely given, freely received. That's why it's personally and persuasively delivered. It's personally and persuasively accepted or received. This is how you acquire wisdom. All right, now the nature of this, you can do either one. You can either right-click the English word and do your word study there. Or you can right-click the Hebrew word and do your word study there. Either way, you're doing your word study on Kana. 
And when you look at this wheel, man, you see a variety, don't you? Of all the uses for Kana here, uh, buying or bought, that, that seems to be more than half of the uses all deal with either buy, buying, buys, bought, purchased, purchaser, buyer. So the bulk of these show, show use the term in a financial transaction. Use the term in some kind of a, of a, a commercial exchange. Well, would that be appropriate in this setting? Because can you buy wisdom? Can you purchase doctrine? No. We're actually told that to take doctrine and put it on a, on a scale, you can't scale it. You can't measure it. It's far above rubies. It's far above gold, far above silver, even fine silver. You cannot exchange any earthly wealth for God's wisdom. So it's not a purchase as an acquisition. It's freely accepted. It's freely received. Okay? Other ways, it, sometimes it's just simply rendered as acquire, acquired, get, possessor. The interesting ones, though, are where the term is used in childbirth. And that's too small for you to read. Um, the intri- okay, these are all the uses of buy, 29 times, get down through there, and then bought, 20 times, then uh, acquire, 9 times, including the book of Ruth. Boaz says, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess. Okay? And so there the Hebrew used a different word for buy, and it used kana for acquire. Okay, it's part of the package deal. If you buy this, you get this, right? Those are all the uses in Proverbs where it's translated as acquire, purchased, get, including a bunch of Proverbs we'll have coming up, buyer. And some of these are interesting because um, sometimes it talks about God who redeemed us and who purchased us. And, and kana is used in tandem with uh, with redemption, with Goel, with the, the kinsman redeemer. And we realize that, yes, it's a purchase, but the purchase price is not cash. The purchase price is the kinsman redeemer. It's the life of God the Son. And so Kana is a great acquisition term in those contexts as well. God is the possessor of heaven and earth. In Genesis 14, verses 19 and 22, when Melchizedek is worshiping with Abraham and calling uh, El Elyon, Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, he's the Kana. Uh, of heaven and earth. How does he possess it? He created it. Kana has, could even be... That's, that's another way you can possess something. Create it out of nothing. <laughs> Let there be, and there is, and you have just acquired whatever. I've got to close here because I'm out of time, but um, gotten in Genesis 4.1. The man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, okay, in the Hebrew, it's the same root as what we're looking at today with Kana. She gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten, I have Kanad, a man-child, with the help of the Lord. I have Kanad, a son, a man-child. How did she Kana this son? She didn't buy him. She didn't find him in the street. She didn't steal him. She didn't create him. Well, she procreated him. All right, she gave birth. Kana can be used in a birthing context. And that's important. In fact, it's the first use of Kana there in Genesis 4.1. 
in a birthing context. So keep that in mind when we come back to Proverbs chapter 8 because we're going to see Cana in a birthing context for God the Son, for the humanity of Jesus Christ in the hypostatic union. Okay, It's going to be a Cana study from uh, Proverbs chapter 8. We'll pick up on there when we get to chapter 8. We're still in chapter 4. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for this time. It goes by so quickly, Father. I just thank you that you, you bless it, you shape our thinking. Father, you equip us. And I ask, Father, that you would make this very real to us. We've heard it. We now need to unite it by faith. We need it to uh, dwell richly within each one of us so that it can spring forth and bear fruit, 30, 60, and 100-fold. Father, make your word come alive. Let us be persuaded by it. Let us receive it personally. This is now our truth because you've blessed us with it. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.